Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Looking forward to this conversation with Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. Elliot, let's start with you. All right. Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. Uh, Today, what I want to talk about is um, how the market has a really hard time on focusing far out and focuses on what's most imminent, what's like most evident and clear in the front view mirror or, you know, out of the windshield, if you will. Um, So, and I think, you know, one of the things that's been the case since basically COVID uh, started influencing markets is the market has been especially focused on what the next step is. And so if you go back to starting the end of February 2020 into March 2020, it's like, can this company survive? Can they survive a prolonged shutdown? Can they survive with zero revenue for one to two years? Let me re-underwrite all my assumptions and figure out, hey, can they make it? Pretty quickly, it turned into this bifurcation. And so the market thinks, hey, you know, there's some clear winners here, those companies that are fulfilling uh, digital, uh, the digitization of the economy, digital demand, online demand, and the losers, those who were you know, encumbered by their presence being tied to brick and mortar and uh, unable to do business in the real world. And so, you know, within the winners, you think about how much demand was pulled forward and valuing based off of the next multiple on that demand with the losers. It's like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to mark them down and value them based on this new lower run rate, not think about like when reopening happens or anything, not build in any optionality. Then you fast forward to the announcement that the vaccines are um, effective and will begin rollout. And so this was basically early November last year. And suddenly you get this really pronounced reopening trade where those stocks that had been formerly the, the losers of COVID, you start pricing in a resumption of demand and a return to normalcy. And those that are the winners, you start speaking of things like, oh, comps are going to be really tough for quarters two, three, and four in particular, um, gonna have to take down my growth rates. Um, and you know, you stop thinking about all along the way, you know, what steady state is. And it's really just focusing on what's next. It's like where what's the lowest earnings could be, what comps are gonna be tough, and what will growth look like uh, beyond that. And you know, you think about today. Um, one of the things I, I tweeted about this earlier in the week, but you look at a stock like Eventbrite, which is a distinct COVID loser, um, they're up more since the beginning, uh, since the pre-COVID period. So call it, you know, mid-February, than is a stock like Teladoc, who is a distinct COVID winner. And if you want to quibble with Eventbrite being the company I picked, uh, you could look at a stock like Vail Resorts, which is up more since COVID started than is Teladoc. And you could pick many different pairs and kinds of companies. And you see that effectively the pendulum swung a little too far. And the pendulum keeps going back and forth in markets. And 
you know, you keep focusing on what's imminent. But, you know, while I'm speaking here about broad trends in COVID, this is often the case with markets, but these are way more of these like first order, big factor-based moves that are happening in very short periods of time. I could think of like three distinct ones that have happened within the last calendar year, basically. Um, and so that's pretty wild. That's tough to deal with when you're far more focused as an investor on, you know, what's steady state, what's this thing worth over, you know, a period of five to 10 years in contrast to how do I get my positioning right for, you know, what the next inflection is going to be in the demand curve in response to COVID, in response to the measures we're taking, in response to reopening. And so, you know, this is something we always have to contend with, but having this many of these such periods in short time uh, in, in succession is, is rather uh, unique. And I also think, you know, I want to give some examples. I think it's kind of true in stocks themselves as well. Um, many times you might speak with another investor who says something along the lines of, I like this thing over five years, but how do you get past this one issue? And very frequently, you know, that happens with stuff like biotech companies when there's a looming patent cliff. And it's like, okay, I really like the company, I like their pipeline, but how do you think about where, you know, revenues settle one to two years out after the patent cliff, as opposed to like, I really like the value of what this thing should look like over five years? You know, uh, specifically, I'm dealing with one of those situations right now, Canby, which I spoke about, I think, you know, is within one of our first five podcasts on the U.S. sports betting opportunity. Um, they have this overhang of what happens when DraftKings leaves as a customer. And effectively, you know, heading into their last quarterly report, the entire narrative was, OK, things are really taking off in the U.S. Let's price this based on, uh, you know, what happens with the U.S. growth opportunity and the second they report you know, the last of what will be their truly great year-over-year -year numbers in, in the very near term. Yeah, I mean, maybe they have one more quarter of that. Uh, sorry, the, the, the second to last of it. The market's narrative shifts to, oh my God, what happens, you know, when we hit uh, the DraftKings cliff and think about growth from there. Uh, in contrast to still, once again, underwriting to and thinking about like longer-term end states and what the industry structure looks like. Um, and so, you know, uh, some people might say, hey, these things are frustrating and the market's not long-term oriented, which I think Michael Mobson has given great evidence that, in fact, in many cases, the market's pretty long-term in how they underwrite the values of companies. But what's not long-term is the focus of what's top of mind for investors and how incremental dollars are being allocated. And so you often end up with these like major disconnects and I think they're a source of considerable opportunity for people who are able to step away from the noise, use some of the pendulum swinging too far in one way as an opportunity to kind of, you know, give Mr. Market something when Mr. Market's thinking too uh, confidently and enthusiastically about uh, a company or, or even a slice of your portfolio. Um, and to, you know, kind of zoom out and take a longer perspective when there's that one hiccup that everyone knows is going to happen. And truly, it breaks down into... You know, typically when when these kinds of situations play out, you know, a lot of it is about what we talked about before in risk versus uncertainty. You know, when you are losing a customer, it's a distinct risk. You know what the distribution looks like. You know exactly how you could quantify it. Um, and you know, I, I think that's one of the things that that is quite helpful having that semantic distinction and being able to narrow it down accordingly.
So that's my topic. That's the preamble. I'd love to hear maybe some examples that you guys see of this, uh, how you think about how this has played out since the beginning of COVID, because it has been pretty wild watching a first order market take place so many times in, in such a short time span. Um, and any companies or examples where where you think this stuff tends to happen or is happening right now? Yeah, you, you're going to get me all riled up here. I take it you didn't, uh, maybe you did read some of my old letters. I think in 2019, for sure, and, and I think I've reused the phrase since then, I wrote about this concept of what's next versus what's it worth, right? And those two competing thoughts. And we've talked in the past about holding two competing thoughts in your head at the same time, right? And so I, I totally agree that I don't think this market's really totally unhinged in terms of the overall valuations, right? I don't think it holds a candle to 1980s Japan or 1999 NASDAQ or 2006, 2007 US residential structured products. I don't think it's anywhere close to that in a lot of ways. Yes, there's lots of speculative nonsense, but what I do think it might be an all-time high in is not just shamelessness. That's kind of a separate, like the amount of self-promotion and BS, like that might be at an all-time high. I don't know. But I do think you might be at an all-time high in this what's next kind of framework or paradigm winning over everything else. And, and it's just a lot of the same stuff that you just mentioned, right? I mean, all the, the quote-unquote reopening plays now being bid up to a level that's higher than where they were during really, really good times pre-pandemic, despite the fact that the competitive landscape or the balance sheet or whatever has been completely jumbled, right? So I'm looking at you, you know, concert promoters, travel companies, all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, what's totally obvious to anyone that can fog a mirror is that people are desperate to travel and go to concerts and take vacations and go to restaurants and all that kind of good stuff that they've desperately been missing for the last year and change. But that's not good enough because everybody, not only does everybody realize that, but that just doesn't necessarily translate at all to economic success. So I think this is probably one of my favorite ways to invest. I, another way that I like to frame it to people is on the other side, right? So kind of what you were talking about where somebody's hung up on this one issue over the next couple of years and they just can't get over it, even though everything else looks awesome, right? So I call that, yeah, but investing. So everything lines up, you know, you could lay out like literally the perfect investment case and somebody's just going to come back with, yeah, but, and then they come up with this little quibble that really has nothing to do with the overall case. So that, that's that's on the positive side. Like that's when I start licking my chops and getting really excited about stuff. On the other end of the spectrum is where we are today, where the what's next, like super obvious, like no kidding, Sherlock kind of thing somehow carries the day. Um, you know, a great example of it, uh, you know, I, I hate to say it or speak negatively about something specific, but I mean, one of the dumbest articles I think I've ever read in my life was this article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about the kind of retail small guy traders that supposedly cleaned up with this brilliant investment in Hertz, right? The bankrupt car rental company where they interviewed like three or four guys. And it's like, you know, John Doe is a personal trainer in Huntington Beach. And he bought, you know, put like half of his life savings into Hertz at $1.25 a share because he, quote, just knew that this company would benefit post-pandemic or, you know, so-and-so like had a great feeling that this company would be subject to a buyout or some nonsense. Like it, it was just the dumbest thing you'd ever heard. And, and so they were being praised for having taken this risk and being rewarded for it because now Hertz equity is in fact going to 
recover in the bankruptcy. And that's actually just a function of these two competing creditor plans, right? Where the creditor plans are kind of throwing in this equity compensation as like an, almost an afterthought, right? Just to win the bankruptcy auction, so to speak. It, it really doesn't have anything to do with rewarding the economic merits of these, you know, post-petition equity buyers. Um, but then they're, you know, kind of looking askance at poor, poor Carl Icahn, who sold like his huge, gigantic position at 72 cents after the company filed and the stock's now trading, you know, 10x that or whatever it is today. Um, I mean, that's just a classic, totally absurd case of, of what's next thinking rather than what's it worth thinking. And it just seems like you see that almost everywhere today. So one last place I'd, I'd say that I think you can find a way to exploit this sort of thing although very rarely and not without risk and danger is in the options market. I almost never do this, but some years ago, the TARP warrants, you know, the, the warrants that were issued on behalf of the government as part of the financial crisis bailout packages awarded to some large banks, you know, those, those warrants traded publicly. They were generally long dated uh, warrants. You know, I think most of them were 10 years. And uh, so Black-Scholes, you know, has actually quite a bit of validity, both, you know, lots of theoretical validity and quite a bit of empirical validity as well. But it, one thing it admittedly just doesn't do very well is options beyond a year or two. So that was a case where you could go in and put some really simple assumptions on you have no idea what exactly is going to happen, but you know, the odds are really, really favorable. And you know, the people that you're buying from are you know motivated by something that just doesn't really hold water the way you're looking at it. So that's a really good way to take advantage of it. But I really love this topic, Elliot. It's fascinating. Yeah, I'd say... Um you know, we all know the market is myopic and short-term oriented, and there are many manifestations of this. I, I remember one thing that I was really marveling at. Um, there was some kind of a big earthquake at some point, and uh, the market actually went up because people said, well, construction activity is now going to be really strong. So it just kind of goes to show that focus on what's next. You know, you destroyed the the, the capital uh, base, but because there's going to be construction activity to replace that capital base, all of a sudden that's that's bullish. Um, and I think, you know, it, some of this is just a reflection of the lizard brain. You know, people always kind of just thinking about uh, the, the imminent next thing. And uh, partly it's a failure of imagination as well. I think a lot of folks just have a tough time imagining kind of a state that's not obvious or that's not the immediate next, but that might be a little ways uh, out there. Um, so in terms of what to do as investors, I mean, I think number one is just not to take part in, in Keynes's beauty contest, uh, because uh, that's ultimately what this is about, the the what's next. That's kind of trying to guess what's next before the ne the next guy guesses it and kind of getting in front of that. Um, and simply to have an ownership mindset, um, you know, goes to that idea of time arbitrage as well. Basically, there's a huge advantage if you're thinking on a three to five year time frame and willing to look uh, past this uh, this Im imminent next. And I remember uh, Dave Swenson at Yale in in a seminar I took there. He always made the point that you know the long term is just a series of short terms. So um, if you are looking out long term, yeah, you could you could be wrong in the short term, but it's impossible to kind of perfectly time that because um, you know if if that next that kind of imminent short term 
is bearish, but you're bullish long term, you know, at some point that has to flip if you're right. And picking that timing is just incredibly hard because if others kind of catch on to that bullish long term, it's just going to flip at that point and you might miss out on a great thesis just because you wanted to hedge against some near term uh, negative that, you know, um, the market might might kind of throw out there. So uh, I just feel like it's so important to not play that game and to, to have an ownership mindset. Yeah, that's so true. There's so many times I've been involved or been looking at a company, I'll speak with another friend or analyst, and they'll say something along the lines of, yeah, but just like Phil was saying, you know, yeah, but, um, you know, I think maybe in a couple of years uh, or in, in a year or so, we'll have more clarity on this. And, you know, I mean, there's one thing some might say buying sooner rather than later might suggest a degree of FOMO, but I think it's more about understanding what you're underwriting to and what you're expecting to get out of it. Um, and it's often very hard not to anchor um, to where things started when you eventually get involved and think perhaps the market goes back to reflecting on things as they were. And so, you know, Roku is one of those stocks when I got involved where a lot of people were like, maybe wait a little longer. Um, and, you know, I'm glad I didn't uh, because, you know, even then, even though the prices would have been good in hindsight, it's a lot harder to get involved once it kind of makes its move. Um, I'm so glad I got you riled up, Phil. I think that's great. I love the names that you offered here. Um, what's next versus what it's worth is just an amazing way to phrase it. Um, and you really do encounter that just way too much. Um, I think one of the hardest parts to think about is, you know, in the market, Soros uh, has this quote about how uh, the herd is often right, that momentum's true. But at the same time, when you think about risk in the market, if it is what everyone's focused on and everyone knows it's a risk, you know, most of the time, more often than not, it is supposed to be discounted in the stock's price. And, you know, I've seen cases where a known risk uh, actually, you know, manifests as distinct pain in the stock from there. Uh, but by and large, it's something that should be priced in, should be incorporated and synthesized into the underwriting process of the people involved. And so if it is that one thing everyone's talking about, I think, you know, I think back to my experience with NVIDIA, which I view as one of the biggest mistakes in my career, buying in in around 2012, holding it up and down 50% three times uh, when everyone was focused on Tegra and being intrigued by the persistence of the PC business and where servers could go. And, you know, I sold before I ever really had the chance to make money on the company, on the position, on the idea, because it was just Tegra this, Tegra that for two years, every conference, uh, every conference was focused on Tegra. Meanwhile, you don't even hear about it at all now. Um, it's not something that comes up on, on, on an earnings call there. And once that went into the rear view mirror, the thing actually started working. One other thought, and then I'll, I'll kick it uh, out again. But, you know, I was thinking about this Phil, you mentioned the ticket companies, the concert ticket companies uh, being very strong. I do have a hard time knowing like, to what extent what 2022, for example, for a full year is going to be versus what a steady state is going to be. Because there are certain bottlenecks in the amount of people who are touring. Like Basically, any band who tours wants to tour this year. They want to get out there. They want to get out to their fans. Fans are as enthusiastic as ever to have in-person experiences. Just yesterday morning, I was buying concert, concert tickets of a band who I saw in that venue a couple of years ago, and they sold out in 10 seconds, even though their last visit was close to, but not entirely sold out. And it was just crazy. 
Um, so I think people want to get out there, but like, again, you know, how do you think about what, what is persistent and what steady state? I mean, we have some frameworks we could use and, you know, I think it's a lot better to think about what it's worth, not what happens next and not trying to be precise. Uh, I think precision is your enemy in that sense. Yeah. Precision is definitely your enemy. That's for sure. And that's where, I mean, I'll give you a good example that I'm more than happy to talk about now because I don't have a horse in the race anymore. So again, as always take this as the opposite of investment advice. This is for informational, educational purposes only, but I've talked about the airlines before and I, I've never seen more of a mind bending situation in both directions than the airlines, because for years after the financial crisis and all the post bankruptcy consolidation that happened in the US industry and the, the clear success over really a couple of decades of the low cost model, you still had this hyper focus on what's next. The only thing that almost every investor cared about was what's next, literally like that quarter. And, and you'd get the, the, the epitome of, yeah, but investing. And it was like, well, this, that, and the other thing, it, it's cheap on this basis. The long-term future is relatively good. The prices are still discounting a bad future. Yeah, but the volatility could really be extreme. I can't own it, you know, because by the end of the year, like if the price is down 20 or 30%, it ruins my bonus. I mean, that was just the prevailing narrative for 99% of the people that I talked to. And, you know, oil could go up. You know, I, I just, that's really, that's right around the corner. I really think oil's a problem here, that kind of stuff. It was just on and on and on again. And then, you know, the one thing that I was always worried about and focused on wasn't a pandemic per se. I mean, that's the thing that we're going to talk about this next is investing in the unknown and the unknowable. A pandemic coming out and, you know, basically shutting global airspace for a long period of time and having year over year, you know, capacity and revenue numbers go down 60, 70, 80% in a lot of cases was not something any single person talked about, right? None of the what's next people or the yeah, but people were talking about a pandemic I was thinking about it in the context of, you know, a super volcano, uh, an earthquake that closes SeaTac Airport or a tornado, you know, flattening Atlanta Hartsfield or something like that. Uh, you know, because you, you've seen that a little more frequently. A terrorist attack, obviously, is, is a common example of something that could cause a real, you know, exogenous shock to the industry. Okay, but great. So we had this pandemic. It has completely jumbled the industry, right? This will be, you know, the bright line gray shaded area on every chart of the history of this industry for the rest of time. But what are people focused about now? They're still focused on what next, but instead it's flipped the pendulum completely the other way. And it's like, because we just came out of the darkest winter ever and planes are going to be full again and people are desperate to travel again, it's like the airlines can do no wrong. And they're trading on the most optimistic set of projections you could ever possibly imagine. And it's just, the big, like I said, it's a total mind bender that we went from what next, the glass is not just half empty, like there's a hole in the bottom of it to now it's like, who cares about anything? Like, you know, trees grow to the sky. Like it's just unbelievable. And it's a great example of this in both directions. And I think you raise another interesting one there too, because alongside what's next, I think a similar phenomenon is always fighting the last battle. And so when you look at where things are going. Like I had conversations with people involved in the airlines in March 2020 and you know the entire industry had been assuming, you know, the same set of uh problems that you cited were were the problem. And so, you know, going forward, everyone was comparing like the after COVID with 9/11 and saying like, "Oh, after 9/11, it took, you know, 5 years for uh, air traffic uh, to surpass pre-9-11 levels. 
And it's like, wait, 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 let's, let's take a step back. Um, how do you compare this situation with 9-11 where 9-11, it was flying itself that was unsafe versus this situation where, you know, it's, there's nothing unique about flying here. Um, it's life in general that's different and changes. So, you know, I, I think that's a big problem. A lot of people were thinking about it the wrong way. And sure enough, you end up in a situation where, as you're talking now, flying is coming back a lot faster than people thought. And so you end up getting overly enthusiastic about it. But, you know, even after coming out of the financial crisis, you still get people worried about the same things that got us in trouble in the financial crisis. And I think it goes back to the inflation talk last week where we kind of like bifurcated in the world into those who lived, uh, grew up in the U.S. in the 70s and came of age then or who grew up in you know other countries where inflation was a big problem are far more concerned about inflation than those who came of age in kind of the disinflationary late 90s, early aughts. One thing I would quibble with, actually, on uh, back to the airlines. And by the way, so just to expose my priors and biases here, like I actually think leisure will have a, a little mini boom here. Like people are desperate to tra travel and go on vacations and see friends and family, all that good stuff. I think business travel is a much harder set of odds. I, I truly think it is unknowable actually as to how quickly or if at all business travel recovers its prior levels and the implications for that in the industry are massive. Um, but I do think, you know, it is, it's totally obvious, right? I mean, people want to fly, planes are going to be full for a while. What people aren't contemplating at all is the jumbled competitive landscape, the supply situation, balance sheets, you know, costs, all that kind of stuff are just totally lost. One thing I would quibble with though is like, I think I was pretty pessimistic on where the industry stood in March and April of 2020. And I think if you go back and, you know, read the publicly available transcripts, I think the most pessimistic CEOs were still nowhere near pessimistic enough. Like, not a single one of them would have said, oh yeah, we're still going to bleed billions and likely tens of billions in cash in 2021. And yet they are, right? So even though we're going to have this little boom here in the summer, like it's still way worse than people were expecting even a year ago, right? Like I think every forecast, the consensus around this time last year was that the airlines would turn the corner by the third or fourth quarter of 2020. And that was actually just beginning the bottom, right? The bottom was the fourth quarter of 2020 and the first quarter of 2021. So it actually was quite a bit worse than people were anticipating the whole way along. And they kept talking themselves into this, you know, idea and this thesis. And now that the thesis has arrived, it's just off to the races and it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with that either. So the quibble is, is definitely taken for what it's worth. And, and I'm with you there. I think that's also just the innate optimism of humans that no one wanted to truly Correct. Uh, accept the fact that their lives would have to be different for as long as you know it looked like in the worst of uh, COVID. Right. Um, and I personally am happy to say I was like overly pessimistic and things are getting back to normal like sooner and quicker than I'd ever imagined. Um, I had a soft bet, though um, it ended up not being settled because of the terms about when uh, a vaccine would be approved. And, you know, being someone trained as a lawyer first, I insisted on the terms being about uh, an NDA filed. And I had insisted there's no way it would be done by the end of 2020. Um, and so you know, because it was on uh, EUA that the vaccines got out, we had to like just both say, hey, uh, sorry, this bet was too hard to settle in the end because because of the words NDA or approved, whatever. 
uh, needless to say, it happened a lot faster than I think, you know, uh, anyone expected. And here we are. And, you know, I think it's a good problem that we're facing just the unknown on, on that front. Like how good will it get from here and how much persistence will there be? Cause there's definitely some pent up travel, uh, some travel that sure. otherwise would not have happened had it not happened. The business travel questions are really interesting and hard one because it's both like a temporal and a secular question. Um, because of the tools we've learned and the efficiencies we've developed during this time in conducting business that otherwise would have been done in person uh, over long distance travel, um, you know, will there be a return to it? But I, I feel like so much of it is like based on seeing how other people act. And if half the world starts traveling a lot because they value being there in person, I mean, especially in a competitive environment, you're going to also have to get on a plane and go there to shake someone's hand. Um, but you know, it's impossible to say how long that sort of situation plays out and what becomes acceptable and what's not. I, I think that's a huge point. This is a little bit of a tangent, but it's fascinating to me how often that arguments get skipped, right? Because not only do people like to get together and look at each other face to face and eye to eye, rather than the totally exhausting emotionally draining concept that is zoom meeting after zoom meeting. So I, I think that's, I think people would acknowledge that. But the other thing that doesn't seem to get any attention is what you just said, the competitive nature of it, because if you're a salesperson and your competitors out there meeting people and putting in that extra effort to get on a plane or get in the car and go do something, are you really going to sit home and schedule some more zoom meetings? And likewise, if you're, you know, in an organization of any size and you have a peer at your level who's in there with the boss in the office every day, are you really going to work from home every Friday or, you know, all the time or whatever? I, I just think that's totally against human nature. I think it's every bit as much against human nature as sitting home forever and never taking another trip to visit family or vacations or whatever. So yeah, I mean, my, my hesitancy on forecasting recovery in the business travel market, is just because I think the nature of it is going to change and and the implications for the business model at a microeconomic level are are tough. I think that that is where it gets different. But I think Elliot, you're exactly right. And I I I don't know why that concept doesn't get more attention. Like people are competitive, and when people start seeing their competition do things, they're not going to just sit home. I think it does get back to what's next versus what it's worth, because in essence. You know, there are people who are pontificating on this, sitting there saying, you know, what's next is what's been, right? This has worked, so we'll continue yeah. to do it. But yeah. what it's worth, I mean, holy cow, it's worth closing the deal, right? Whatever it takes. For sure. Um, though I do think some companies have gotten addicted to kind of marking down their travel-related S&M expense and harvesting that as margin and talking about how much operating leverage is inherent in their business. Right. Yeah, I agree. Look, I think it'll continue some trends. You already saw a more distributed workforce before. We've talked about this, but I, I just, the competitive angle, I think gets gets completely overlooked in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I was talking to someone in sales today and he said specifically what they've been talking about in their company is more work from home than had happened pre-COVID, but the same amount of business travel and in-person meetings. And that seemed to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think that does make sense. And I think it could also be, you could delineate it by if you have a project or a day or a week or a month where you really do need to just work on it by yourself, then sure, you might not need to travel or commute into the office for that. But you know, for, for most of the world, that's not really how things evolve or, or happen every day. So I, I just, I mean, 
Is it going to be more than it was? Sure. Is it going to be hundred percent of people? No chance. Is it going to be even more than like a tiny little fraction of people? It seems unlikely. So I don't know. All right. Well, should we move on to Phil Elliott? Did you want to kind of tee up Phil? Uh, you know, I think a lot of this similarly gets to, I think thematically, we've been talking over the course of a couple of weeks of things that relate to this question of uncertainty versus risk. And what we were just talking about with the airline uh, return of um, business travel, you know, very much in the land of uncertainty. And it's different than the situation in the beginning of COVID where you had to re-underwrite everything to what were known risks. Like you knew where air traffic was going when lockdowns were in order. And you knew exactly how much money uh, these airlines had to burn just to keep everything else uh, in place in that time. And so, you know, it's a theme and topic I love. And I think Phil's got a really interesting angle here. Yeah, so... Thanks. It does tee up perfectly. And this is a natural continuation of what we've been talking about for a while now. And I, I want to just take the opportunity to recommend a, a paper uh, written in 2006 by Richard Zeckhauser, a professor at Harvard called Investing in the Unknown and Unknowable. I keep a file on my desk of, you know, I don't know, a few hundred pages at most of like the absolute best papers and articles. Yeah, a couple of books, I guess, are thrown in there too. They really just found, they, they kind of formed the foundation, I think, of the right way to think about business and investing and all sorts of interesting problems. And this is one of them. So we should have talked about this long before. And when we got into the discussion where Elliot talked about risk versus risk versus uncertainty and, and Michael Mobison pointed out the concept that was actually originally derived from naivety and uncertainty, I thought, oh yeah, I think the first time I actually heard about that idea attributed to uh, Frank Knight was in this paper. So highly encourage everybody to check it out. But the things to highlight from it for me are that he lays out uh, a three by two grid of risk, uncertainty, and ignorance. So in the case of risk, this is kind of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you have the distribution of returns that is known. And in that case, the skills that you need are portfolio optimization, right? So I, I don't mean to sound, and he goes on to point that like, point out, this is kind of what, if you have any training as a financial analyst, this is often where you're trained in this sort of thinking, right? So instead of being uh, you know, an, an insurance underwriter, in this case, if you're a gambler, this is where you just are playing roulette um, or to a lesser extent, blackjack, right? Where, where you know how many cards are in the deck, you know what's possible, the rules are well-defined. And what you really need to do is just make the best possible decision in that set of circumstances, right? So, and this is, and to his point about financial training, this is how you know CFAs are trained. This is how MBAs are trained. And look, that has a lot of value, right? I mean, I'm not a CFA, but I am an MBA and I, I teach those students you know, the, some of this kind of thinking, right? I mean, it's obviously important, but I would argue it's sufficient uh, or it's necessary, but totally insufficient, right? This, this cannot be all that you have because it just doesn't cover very much of the world. The next row down is uncertainty, where the distribution of returns is not known, but it can be guessed at. It can be conjectural. And in this case, you need portfolio optimization as before, but you also need decision theory, right? You need to know, uh, you know how to act given uncertainty and how other behaviors and uncertainty might play into it. And then the most interesting case is the state of the world he calls ignorance, where the distribution of returns is totally guessed upon, but it's really just inferred or, or even deduced from others' behavior. And complementary skills are often rewarded. So this is where he means you know, worldly wisdom, basically. So having a good education, knowing how to think properly. When, when somebody asked me, 
you know, what's the best hallmark of a good investor? I usually just say, oh, they think clearly. And somebody says, okay, well, what does that mean? And I say, yeah, I don't know either. But, you know, you, you kind of know it when you see it, right? It's the Justice Potter Stewart kind of thing. It's like, you, you know, somebody thinks clearly when you run into them and read what they've written or, or listen to what they've said. It, it just kind of jumps off the page. So, it, you know, in a world of ignorance where you, you really can't lay out the distribution of returns very easily without making some pretty big inferences, you obviously need portfolio optimization skills. You obviously need decision theory skills, but you need other complementary skills and strategic inference skills. And that's what he talks about. And it's it's a widespread condition in investing where even the possible states of the world are not known. And traditional finance theory in that case becomes pretty much completely useless, right? So the two classic examples he uses in the paper are David Ricardo buying British bonds before the right before the Battle of Waterloo, where you know a classic uh, heads I win, tails I don't lose very much, where he had no clue except it wasn't a coin flip, right? He had no clue what the odds of the battle would be. He was not a military strategist. He just knew that the seller on the other side was very eager. He knew the competition to buy those bonds was close to zero, if not actually zero. He may have been the only bid for them, that kind of thing. So the odds in that, in that case are almost always favorable. And those are the kinds of things that we always want to go looking for, right? I mean, it's a, it's a yeah, but kind of kind of situation. And and he talks a lot, uh, Zach Hauser talks a lot in this paper about the willingness to look stupid. And so in this case, you can imagine getting a yeah, but response to all this kind of stuff. He's like, well, I don't know what the odds are, but you know, if, the, if we lose the battle, I'm not going to lose very much. It's already kind of priced for that. Well, yeah, but you're going to look like an idiot. You know, that that's basically the response. And when when the response or the pushback, the only criticism you get to an investment idea is, yeah, but you're going to look like an idiot. You know you're onto something really good, right? So the other um, example he calls in is Buffett selling reinsurance to the California Earthquake Authority. Uh, this would have been, I guess, after the Nor- Nor- Northridge quake in the 90s. Um, and by the way, just a quick plug, I think I've talked about this before, but Lucy Jones is, for anyone who's friend in California, is kind of a local celebrity. Uh, she's a seismologist at Caltech. I guess she's I think she's still on the faculty at Caltech. She now runs her own institute. And uh, she wrote a book called The Big Ones, and it's about earthquakes and other natural disasters. Um, But the way she thinks about this kind of stuff, both in terms of assessing the odds and probabilities and her strategies and techniques for communicating that to the public is absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's a fantastic book. It doesn't get quite that much attention, I don't think, but it really should. It's an absolutely unbelievable book. So anyway, the point was that Buffett, you know, in in the aftermath of, you know, some earthquakes, had no information that was any different from anybody else's. He's not a seismologist, obviously. He had no idea what the odds were. Um, but, you know, the, the California State Earthquake Authority was saying, look, based on our best guess of like long-term trends, we think we're offering like five times more value than is justified. And we still can't find a buyer for this or a seller in this case for this. Is anybody out there willing? And so Buffett basically stepped up and said, yeah, I'm, I'm basically willing to risk about 3% of Berkshire's book value or net worth at the time to make a very lucrative payday based on what I perceive to be an extremely mispriced set of odds. And the risk, of course, would be that he signs this contract and the next morning there's a giant earthquake in California and he looks like a moron. Um, of course, that didn't actually happen and, and that's fine. But I mean, he's more than happy to take that risk and he's you know the best investor in the world because of it. Similarly, I mean, he has no clue. Nobody has any clue what the odds are of getting a perfect NCAA basketball bracket is or even getting you know the first, getting the Sweet 16 correct or anything like that. Uh, they are truly incalculable odds um, in advance. You have a general sense maybe of what they might be, but he's more than happy to to underwrite that sort of thing. If he and a G chain, if they think that's you know 
if the odds are priced correctly, he's he's more than happy to do that. So in these sorts of scenarios, which he dubs unknown and unknowable, you know that there is a clear path to profits if you can find these sorts of situations, right? And he he points out Zeckhauser does that most big money is made when investment skill is combined with complementary skills, uh, you know this sort of strategic thinking, you know handicapping who's on the other side, all that kind of stuff. So he, he points out some of the usual suspects: natural disasters, terrorist attacks, etc. And he does acknowledge that unknown and unknowable event, events are widespread and inevitable, and thinks that's kind of dreary, even though they are potentially very profitable. And he points out that you know most investors' training is for the the top level of the distribution, which are risk. So he, he makes what I thought was a really interesting conclusion, which was that if you build all your bridges that are too strong, that they so that never one never falls down, you may have wasted some resources. And likewise, if you make all your investments such that you never look stupid or never risk looking stupid, you actually haven't taken enough intelligent risk. And I thought that was a really interesting way to put it because he said, you know, there's actually a third you in this framework. And it's not just unknown and unknowable, it's unknown, unknowable, and unique. So you really get one chance to do it, right? And basically, if you know the odds are great, you know that you know you, you have the right framework to execute on this and you're too chicken to do it, then you really deserve a bad result, right? I mean, that, that's really kind of horrible. Um, so anyway, uh, the implications for me are, you know, one, you know, how do you avoid being the unknown, un- unknowable and unique loser which in, for me jumps into something like you know long-term capital management, where these were guys with IQs far higher far higher than mine, um, but they still managed to lose tons and tons of money because the unknown and the unknowable, you know, Russia defaulting on its debt and you know, and a currency crisis kind of coming out of nowhere. No one can model that and predict that, right? I mean, there's no reason for Russia to have defaulted on its debt or any of the other things to go wrong. There's no reason for you know spreads on off-the-run treasuries to blow out to you know a multiple of what they've ever been in history, but it still happened, right? Pandemics happen, things happen. And so when those types of events do come down the pike, you just can't get killed. So that that to me is the most obvious example. But I want to hear from you guys what you think about that. And then also what kind of unknown and unknowable situations are out there today, um, either in the positive sense, you know, bets you can take advantage of, or in the negative sense, you know, things we could avoid. Oh, man. Well, this is an awesome topic. Thank you for reminding me of this paper, which I read several years ago and hadn't revisited, I'm definitely due for a revisit. And it makes me think of a few different things. Um, I have a friend who loves reading like intelligence and military strategy pieces. And I think it directly relates to, you know, this paper and investing in general. Um, and you know, I love this phrase that you added in here, this willingness to look stupid. It's one of those things that, you know, when you, especially in FinTwit, you see this kind of like schadenfreude at people who are wrong about things. Um, but you know, some of the greatest ideas often sound pretty stupid before they actually have the chance to play out. Um, and it takes a unique perspective to the world and a unique character to be able to deal with the consequences of looking stupid for a prolonged period of time before you actually get an answer. I think one of the hardest parts in markets, you know, I have this natural uh, attraction to the concepts behind the Kelly criterion. The problem is, you know, in the situations where you typically deploy it, be it, you know, a casino and blackjack or, um, you know, even with certain setups in uh, arbitrage of uh, converts and whatnot, um, 
you have a finite period of time and you know when you'll get an answer. Uh, but in markets, when you make an investment, uh, not only do you not know exactly what your odds or probabilities are, but you don't even know like when you're going to get an answer on if you're right or not. And along the way, you might think you're on the brink of an answer and you might actually not. And it might be as unknowable at that point in time as it is, you know, uh, as it was when you first uh, conceived the idea. And so, you know, these are some of the big challenges that we have to deal with. And then there's this asking the question, who is on the other side? And I think it's a great question to ask. Like I often ask myself, um, so the market's generally efficient. Why does this opportunity exist? And I think it relates to our earlier conversation because sometimes the answer to that question is, you know, everyone's focused on what's next, but I'm here willing and able to say like, hey, what's this worth over five 10 years instead of thinking about what's next. Or, you know, maybe it's there's a forced seller or there's a mischaracterization uh, going on where, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot with Stitch Fix lately. The company is thought of as a subscription service and the average analyst who's looking at it is predisposed to think of subscription and looks at, you know, across cohorts, these really clean curves in the typical company they look at. But hey, what if the behavior is more like that at Nordstrom, where someone buys a lot of stuff one year and then buy anything the next year, comes back in year three, that's not going to look like a clean curve. And it creates this sort of mismatch between the kind of investors who'd be attracted and the opportunity that actually exists and how you should be thinking about it. Um, and then lastly, I think it also ties into after the fact analysis of how you think determine, you know, in those situations where you are wrong, like, hey, did I end up in the wrong end of the distribution? You know, I'd view that as, as, as a fair, I wouldn't view that as a mistake. I'd call that wrong still, right? You lost money, so you're wrong, but it's not a mistake versus mistakes of fact, where you actually got something wrong in your analysis. And so I think, you know, it's really hard ex-ante to know where you're going to end up and what's going to happen. Um, but, you know, I like this idea of breaking down the world um, into risk, uncertainty, and ignorance. Um, ignorance is a really tough area. Um, you know, I, and it's hard not to say, like, I think everything about how reopening plays out, um, what happens, uh, at what level do we reach saturation of the number of people who are willing to get the vaccine. Um, what happens with reopening of borders and having certain uh, mutations of COVID get uh, cross country lines? And, you know, what does herd immunity look like if it's possible? Does it come back or not? Um, but, you know, then I start thinking like, well, mentally, maybe I'm just fighting the last battle and, you know, what, what I should be thinking about in ignorance terms, uh, has more to do with, um, you know, look at this attack, uh, cyber attack on the pipeline in, uh, the Eastern seaboard. Um, I, when we talked not long ago about what sort of like tail risks we feared, you know, obviously, I, I I remember pointing out at the time that all of us, when tail risk comes up, they're inherently the really bad negative things. And so, you know, I, I, I think um, 
what happens if there is like some sort of cyber attack that takes down a lot of our systems that we rely on? Um, that's that's something that's like, you know, we're in the land of ignorance, but uh, it is a distinct risk and you could quantify it as such. Um, and then one of the ones I've been really thinking about lately uh, on, on the other side is what if, um, you know, we had effectively delayed the stimulus we should have done in 2009, 2010, 2011 period to now, and we get a resumption to trend growth. And what if, you know, I saw the Bank of America fund manager survey yesterday, and it's like everyone's number one concern is inflation, and they're all convinced we're going to have really rapid growth from here. And what if we end up in this scenario where we have um, really rapid growth and inflation is not the concern. Um, I think that would be, you know, I, I don't think that's a question a lot of people are grappling with. Like, what if we do return to trend growth? Because return to trend growth would imply some period of, you know, catch up growth and then get back to trend. And that would be quite the wild scenario. Um, I'm just spitballing here, but those are a couple of things that come to mind. Curious what you guys have. Yeah, I, I want to jump in with two things. One is something I should have talked about. I left it for this and you teed it up perfectly. But before I do that, I think you're exactly right about, you know, ending up in the wrong place versus just having a bad uh, sort of outcome, right? And as it pertains to the airlines, like I said, I mean, people ask, well, was it a mistake? Or I mean, look, clearly anytime a single dollar of capital is impaired, it's undesirable. You don't want to do that. But it sort of goes back to the issue of like, if you never have an idea that makes you look stupid, you're probably not taking enough intelligent risks. So, you know, my best ideas are often ones where they either sound boring or make me look stupid at first, right? And in some of those cases, they're going to come back and bite you in the rear end. And that's just life. And so in this case, I mean, I still to this day, don't think I ever misappraised the odds. It's just anytime you're playing a game where there's any dispersion of the odds and you don't have a perfect fit for the graph, right? You're not playing roulette. You don't know exactly what's even possible out there, this kind of thing's going to happen. So yeah, sure. Of course it's regrettable. You know, I, it was, certainly wasn't a risk that was, you know, overly punitive or anything. Uh, you know, the outcome wasn't fun, but it wasn't all that painful. And so, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that I can absolutely tolerate, even though of course it makes me sick to even have, you know, anything other than perfection happen all the time. So it's just kind of, you know, an interesting way to, to think about that. But anyway, the, in the paper, Zeckhauser lays out something that's exactly what you were talking about, where this is just a two by two grid where across the top you have easy for others to estimate and hard for others to estimate. And across the vertical axis, you have easy for you to estimate and hard for you to estimate. And so at the top row, you know, you've got easy for you to estimate and easy for others to estimate. And that's where you have really tough, efficient markets, right? Because everybody's got basically the same access to information. Everybody can apply their same, you know, kind of analytical techniques. Nobody has much of an edge. You know, you're going to have the paradox of skill just running and running rampant in that world. And it's going to be really, really hard to get an edge. Uh, on the other side of that top row, you're going to have easy for you to estimate, but hard for others. And that just means they're the sucker, right? So, of course, you want to play that game, I guess, to a certain extent, because it's going to be kind of shooting fish in a barrel. And those are hard to find in this day and age, particularly, but that's perfectly good. The focus of this paper is the second row, right? Where you have hard for you to estimate. Right. And then in the first column there, it's easy for others to estimate. So you're at an information disadvantage there and you're the sucker here. Right. So you just want to avoid this quadrant all you can. Right. So that's what I was talking about. Right. Like, how do you avoid being um, either the LTCMs of the world or, or just playing a game that you shouldn't 
Uh, and that to me is the most obvious implication or takeaway from this paper. But then in the lower right, you have hard for you to estimate, hard for others to estimate. And this is where Buffett sold reinsurance to California, right? For exactly the reasons you were talking about, where this is where you can come in and say, you know, who's on the other side of this, right? A lot of times it, you don't know, or it doesn't necessarily matter, right? In tough markets, it probably doesn't matter all that much, but in this market, it, it kind of does. And so if you have a forced seller who's selling just because there was a rating agency downgrade or a default in a bond where it was already priced for like the worst possible liquidation scenario or an earthquake where, you know, the authorities can't give away money and, and they just desperately need somebody to sign up and take the other side to kind of, you know, CYA, now, that is perfect, right? That's exactly what you're looking for. I mean, we've talked before about a hedge fund that's, you know, unnamed, but certainly not apocryphal, where all they do is go looking for failed phase two or phase three clinical trials. And, you know, on the day that that news hits, the stock's probably down 60, 70, 80, 90%, whatever it is, but they know that, you know, that may be a temporary setback. They know that there's still some sort of IP value there, whatever. So they're buying like crazy on that day, knowing that there's probably... 10, 20, 30 points up from there. And, you know, that's a pretty freaking awesome return. And so that's exactly the kind of game that they go looking for. And, and that's that's really nirvana. So that that to me is one of the best parts of the paper. It's it's you know buried about halfway in there, but it's definitely worth checking it out. Yeah, I I'd say definitely it's it's huge if you can figure out or know who you are buying from or selling to in the market, because that's often going to give you a clue of whether you are uh, the the rational or smart a party to that trade. Um, you know, for example, when when DraftKings was hitting new uh, highs, there were there was massive insider selling, and so if you're buying DraftKings at that point. You are buying it from the guys who know it best, um, you know, and who are touting it to to the high heavens, and yet they're happily selling their shares to you. So you know, you may want to kind of think twice when when you've got that kind of situation. Uh, but this idea of of identifying where there are non fundamental sellers and then uh, considering whether to be a buyer, I think, is powerful and well established. Uh, it kind of goes back to that idea that Greenblatt uh, talked about with spin-offs where often uh, you know people will sell uh, one of the two securities for non-fundamental reasons um, or you know you could have a high profile fund undergoing a forced liquidation and you could look through the wreckage if there's uh, anything worth buying. Um, often those kinds of situations are picked off though because there's a lot of smart folks in the market these days. And, uh, you know, so sometimes when you have something like this where there's non-fundamental sellers, uh, you could end up with too many buyers and, uh, and, and that would defeat the whole purpose. So sometimes I feel like um, it, it's even more compelling if there's not a specific reason that's identifiable, but if it's just fear generally. Uh, speaking, where you can kind of go against that fear. It goes kind of to the Buffett quote, uh, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful, or uh, might be analogous to um, what can be said about investing with a catalyst. If a catalyst is visible, it's already priced in. 
usually. So, you know, having a catalyst that's not visible uh, is really tough, but that that would uh, be really good. And, and kind of fear is almost like a catalyst that's not visible. Um, so you have, you know, non-fundamental sellers, but it's not for some... Uh, some specific reason. Um, I also love what you said, Phil, about uh, this notion of don't try to never lose money because you'll end up just uh, being too conservative and you're actually not going to take um, high expected value bets. You know, sometimes you come across situations that are fairly low probability, but high expected value. And uh, those those are great in a portfolio context. You don't want to size them too large. But if you do enough of those, you're going to come out uh, ahead. Um, yeah. So, uh, Phil, one question for you. Just you mentioned uh, unknown and unknowable and unique. What exactly did you mean by unique? Yeah, he that wasn't me. That was in the original paper. Zach Hauser added that as a third you to the framework. And he just means there's one chance to do it, right? So there's not going to be a second LTCM bailout for Buffett. There's probably not going to be a second chance to do this one-off reinsurance deal with the California Earthquake Committee, right? So there's there's also an example in the paper that's really interesting. It's, it's not all that dissimilar, actually, to Charlie Munger's famous Bell Ridge Oil example. Um, in this case, I don't know if it was fictional or real. It wasn't real clear, but he, get, he gets kind of a one-page letter uh, describing an opportunity where uh, he could invest in an oil deal, basically a pure wildcat oil opportunity. And because of a whole bunch of features of it, right? Like it's not on letterhead. It's not really well explained. It ha- kind of has to be offered to people, I think, as part of some sort of pre-existing settlement or legal arrangement. And so by fulfilling this obligation, it's very, very much like one of the Greenblatt, Greenblatt special situations you were talking about, you know, from back in the day, and you can be a stock market genius kind of thing. So it was, kind of makes your antenna go up, right, when you when you read this. And so the author in this case, Zach Hauser, did some little, little bit of research and found out that, you know, it, you know, if the odds of this failing weren't, you know, known, but they weren't too terrible. And the payoff, if it worked, was like 20 to one or 25 to one. So, um, you know, and you get and the, the, by the way, the the sponsors putting up all their own capital for it, and if you don't participate, it all goes back to the sponsor, and they're like very happy to have that. So like it's just a lot of inferences you can make that like the odds of this actually working are pretty good. And so if you put up a little bit of capital, sure you might lose it. It's not going to be the end of the world, but if it hits, it's going to be like a pretty awesome home run. So that's a unique thing, right? So if you pass it up, like if you don't sign and return this, you know, deal sheet and sign this term sheet and participate in this deal and wire the money, the opportunity has gone, right? That's a unique opportunity. It's never coming back. Uh, just like Bell Ridge Oil, like he had one chance to buy that slug of shares. They were not readily available on the market. And if he didn't get it, it's it's gone forever. So, and, and before I forget, John, to your point uh, before this about, you know, not being, being too cautious, you know, not being willing to look stupid, um, not only do I think that's really important, but Elliot raised this a minute ago about, you know, people on Twitter and Lord knows I have, you know, probably more issues, more of a love hate relationship with Twitter than, than you two guys do. But one of the things that really drives me nuts on there is that, you know, look, the, the benefits are all well known, right? There's lots of smart people on there. You can find lots of great information. You can have people poke holes in your ideas and, you know, test your, test your own knowledge against other people. It's, it's all great. But beyond just the self-promotion and the, you know, the internet tough guys, one of the things that drives me the most nuts is just how much time people on there seem to be spending just to try to impress these other people on Twitter, right? They're not, they're like, 
going so far out of their way to not look stupid, to actually look smart, to like impress each other. And it's like, this just can't be productive, let alone profitable from an investment perspective. So again, I think at some point, whether it's in an investment or a career move or personally or whatever, you, you have to be willing to, to stick your neck out, right? Or you're just never going to get any rewards. Yeah. Amen to that. I think that's the truth. It's, um, you know, I, I think even uh, in baseball, as you get to this three true outcomes, I think a lot of batters kind of implicitly started understanding that. It used to be that you were optimizing for batting average, but now it's like, let's optimize for the total return, so to speak, of your expected runs based on how you behave as a batter. Um, so that means, hey, we're in a world where there are a lot of strikeouts and there are way more batters missing. Um, though maybe, you know, people have to start thinking a little differently because the pendulum perhaps swung too far in the other way. Um, I also think it's hard to have this conversation without invoking the notion of volatility, uh, because I think the presumption behind this conversation is that everything's got defined odds and distributions, or at the very least, you know, we're dealing with things where there's like a clear point at which you could assess something. But, um, I think one of the biggest challenges in markets themselves is, uh, path dependency and what the, um, steps from A to B do to you in framing whether you think you're right and assessing, reassessing the probabilities from a new point in time, like given what you knew before and what you've learned since. Um, and I think that's one of the most challenging things because, um, you know, I have this quote that I like flipping out there, which is the idea. Uh, I, I mean, I'll start with two, two quotes. Um, one is that, you know, volatility is not risk. Risk is how we deal with volatility. And the other is that volatility is the market's way of grappling with uncertainty. So in companies where there are uh, big uh, tail possibilities, so including a very big right tail, um, the volatility of those kinds of stocks is going to be way greater than something that's a known entity. Um, and I think that creates interesting setups in both ways, um, because you know, a lot of people have this aversion to volatility uh, by nature. Um, they view something moving up and down a lot. And if it's way up, they're like, I missed it. If it's way down, they're like, oh, it's terrible for whatever reasons uh, the narrative that made it go down is. I, I liked John's idea of, you know, like things that are going down because, you, hey, I don't know. Um, you know, that's kind of interesting. But I think most of the time people sit there and ascribe a narrative to it. So, you know, you have volatility driving things around. You have these stocks that are very volatile. And I think, you know, from the long perspective, if you could find a company and take a variant perception to it, that's interesting. On the other side, if you could find one of those incredibly stable companies, like I think, you know, going back to the conversation on short selling and how hard short selling is, I almost think the best setups are in those companies that are so boring that, you know, no one's really contemplating a change in path and finding a way to uh, see where change might come from and having opportunities to lean in. And so, you know, there's something to be said about uh, what's Im embedded in the stock with respect to the knowns, the unknowns, and the ignorance. And I think, uh, you know, there are ways that we could reason around it and find angles to kind of exploit and explore the market. And volatility gives you many chances along the way in that. Yeah, that's exactly what I think Zach Hauser is trying to get at when he talks about complementary skills. And even though he um, 
he does talk about basically know thyself, right? And you, you can't do things that make you uncomfortable or go contrary to your own psychological makeup. And he does invoke Kahneman and Tversky. So it's all in there. But um, I think you're exactly right that he doesn't, uh, th- th- this is what he's trying to get at, right? So he doesn't say it in so many words, but that is exactly what he's trying to get. The other thing, I think the other point you made that's really important, and this is something I've really changed my mind on in like the last 10 years, was when I was first introduced to the concept of investing, it was like, well, of course, beta is stupid. Like volatility is not risk in any way, shape or form. Like the stream of cash flows is still out there in the future. It still needs to be discounted based on your analysis and an application of a prior discount rate. And if the price falls, all else equal, it's now less risky, not more risky, right? Like what could be dumber than that one-to-one link between you know, risk and volatility. But what I was, of course, totally missing at the time, which is what you just said, is the link between volatility and your own behavior. Because it is really easy, even if you think you're super rational, to have volatility talk you into doing some really dumb things. It certainly happened to me. It happens to everybody, I think. So um, you do have to be cognizant of that. And that's where I think these complementary skills, that's what Zach Hauser calls them, or, you know, know thyself, psychological analysis, and knowing who's on the other side. You know, one of them is is of course, digging into what the expectations are that are embedded. So, you know, what's in this price, right? Basically, what what is in this price? What are the odds? Are, and can I stomach it? Can I stomach this going against me? And that's just really, really important. And I don't think there's a great way to teach it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it's something that you have to learn. You have to learn through, you know, going back to the baseball analogy, stepping up to bat and taking some swings and checking your gut and seeing how you feel. Um, and that's interesting. I, I, I should reread the paper, like internalizing that point, but yeah, I mean, the whole idea of knowing yourself and, and I guess you did get at that when you talked about those situations where you, um, you, you can know that you're the patsy at the table where, where, you know, that someone else can know it, but you can't, um, those kinds of things are incredibly important. And that I guess is the definition of the concept circle of competence, right? That, that is it in a nutshell. Um, so, you know, I, geez, volatility is the hardest thing for me to grapple with. I think it's one of the allures and, and I, I mean, grapple with intellectually, uh, in markets, I kind of have learned, it took some time to kind of embrace and get comfortable with it and appreciate what it could do. But, you know, I think even from a firm's perspective, when people talk about like career risk, how there are those who'd rather fail conventionally than unconventionally, like that's a big problem in the industry. So how do you sit there and say, you know, I want to, um, not fail in any way, like irrespective of whether it's conventionally or unconventionally, but I want to acknowledge the fact that there are certain, uh, things that are essential to how volatility acts when you're investing with clients money, as opposed to your money. Um, and what it does to have conversations like when volatility, uh, let, let's be real about volatility. Most of the time people talk about it and invoke it. It's about things going down, not when they're up. Like you hardly ever hear anyone say that something going straight up is volatile. Um, you know, when things are going down, people want to talk about what, what's going wrong. But meanwhile, you as an investor, you want to focus, you want to be thinking about buying. Um, and, you know, to kind of grapple with that in a way, I, I've come to ask myself this question. And I know it's impossible to answer until it's actually happening. Um, but if this stock goes down severely before it goes up at all, would I question any of my assumptions? And if, if there's the chance that if it's down and I'd think there'd be a reason I'd sell, 
you know, I just sell today and I move on. Or, you know, I mean, if I'm not involved, I'm, I'm not going to get involved at all. Um, so I think I think those are some of the parts of uncertainty. Um, because, again, you could be right on a thesis over the course of five years, but if it goes down 50% and you're not ready, willing uh, to deal with that and you didn't see that in the distribution of what could possibly happen from when you're underwriting to when you expected to realize an outcome, you know, you very well might be wrong. And I don't know where that mistake fits into the two categories that laid out uh, because it's kind of like a see other option, but um, you know, these are the things that I, I think probably more people should talk about in our industry and try to like give a fair sense of how they think about it. Well, it also goes to the idea of doing your own work. And I feel like um, a lot of folks don't do enough of their own work. And, you know, this idea of cloning has been popularized to such an extent that a lot of folks just feel like if there's a couple of super investors involved, uh, they can just do a bit of cursory work and they're good to go. Uh, but first of all, as you mentioned, Elliot, when it's down 50%, then you don't know what to do. Like take a seritage uh, Seritage, you know, went down a lot from where Buffett got in or, or others got in. And then if you didn't really do your own work, you're not really going to know what, what the heck to do at that point. Um, and also, I feel like you're not learning as much over your investment career if, unless you're doing your own work and and basically having your own hypotheses tested in the market rather than writing someone's coattails, where then you don't know what the hypotheses even are that are being tested. So if you want to actually learn and improve it as an investor, you got to come up with your own uh, hypotheses and have those tested uh, ideally as often as possible, because the more of those tests and data points you have, uh, the faster you can learn, the better your iterative process and so forth. So I, I think that's that's really key. Yeah, that's so true. You know, I've said this on several pods, but you can't outsource conviction. And then I think you even tie it together very powerfully with, um, you know, you can't do a ex post facto analysis of like, why was I right or wrong? And I think that's why so many people on uh, Fintwood defer to, you know, just bashing the people that are wrong on a given thing, because perhaps they didn't do enough original thinking and just followed someone in. And instead of saying like, hey, I was wrong because of, they're like, that so-and-so investor is an idiot. And it's just a little easier to wave your hand and blame someone else uh, for a mistake than to, um, you know, look at yourself uh, and, and, and say like, wow, I should have known this better. Um, and that's hard to do, have those gut check moments like that. Absolutely. Well, let's end it on this note, guys. Uh, thank you so much for another fascinating discussion. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.